All right, we are in 1 Kings chapter 4. We were thinking we are going to do more than this, but we're just going to look at the widow's oil here tonight. There is a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Now, we've got to get a little bit of the background. This doesn't give us a whole lot, but you can kind of use your imagination. You can pretty much figure out what has happened with this, this woman. Her husband, who was one of the prophets, died. It doesn't say how he died. It just says that she's now a widow. Now, we're in a land that is hostile to, to the uh, uh, people of God. Maybe that he was martyred. Maybe that he just died some other way. Whatever it might be, we don't know exactly what it was. There is a, uh, a teaching or something that came down through the Jewish folks that uh, possibly the person who died is a fellow by the name of Obadiah. Do you remember who that was? Obadiah is one of the ones who hid some of the sons of the prophets from being killed when the queen was going after and, and killing them all. So there was, a, there was that that was passed down. We don't know for sure that it was. You would think that if it was, maybe his name would have been mentioned in there. But anyway, it was left out. We just have that she was a widow. And she's coming here to the prophet for help on this. Now, that's not something that you usually come to a prophet for. So probably she has gone to other people. So she lost her husband. She has no income. And then after a little while, the creditors figure out he's dead. And they come on over knowing that she has no way to, to pay this. And uh, she has no money to, uh, to do that. So she's lost her husband. Creditors are coming by. She's going to lose the house. She's going to lose the sons. And she's about to lose everything. She has probably gone to some of her relatives to ask for some help. And they have either are unable or unwilling to help. Maybe some of the relatives worship Baal. They know that she worships God. And there, there's a animosity there between that. And they don't want to help for that reason. Maybe they're just not able to help. Remember, we had a drought in this area some time ago. Some people may have lost a lot of their uh, fortunes. Maybe they hadn't built it all back up again. Whatever it might be, we don't know all those different things. But you just understand, this, this didn't just happen yesterday. She didn't just lose her husband and run over to the prophet. Uh, pressure has been building. And she's been getting more and more desperate. And she's uh, exhausted every avenue that she knows to try and do this and to try and get some help. And so you need to know that she has gone through this process before she gets here because it changes our thinking. So he, he asked her this question. He says, what do you have? Now, most people that are desperate in desperate situations think they have nothing. Or they think that what they have is, is, is basically no good. I put this in your outline here for you. When we face something that has become impossible in our thinking, what we have becomes inadequate, insignificant, overlooked, and then I just made this, this note, basically devalued. We devalue everything we have because nothing we have in our mind measures up to what we are against. So therefore, it has no value. The only thing that has value for this woman right now, she's lost her husband. She doesn't want to also lose her sons. They mean a lot to her right now. You could certainly understand that. She wants to hang on to the sons, probably wants to hang on to the house as well have a, a place for them to go. Don't really know the age of the sons. Some have supposed that they're young, but we don't really know. 
but she feels that everything that she has is inadequate, insignificant, and overlooked. Now, most of the time this happens when we face something that seems to be impossible. When the disciples faced feeding the 5,000 men, plus all their wives and children, they found, Jesus says to them the same question, what do you have? And they said, well, we have these uh, fish and these loaves, a few little things. He said, but what is that against so many? What we have is inadequate. It's insufficient. It's, it can be so much we can almost overlook it thinking that it has no real value. And so what Elisha is trying to get her to do here is, what do you have? Stop looking at what you have as not having value. And this is one of the things the enemy wants to try and get us to do, is to think that what we have has no value in regards to what we are against or what is against us. And if we have to get out of that thinking. Because there are some things that we have, despite the material things, don't we still have the Word? Amen. Don't we still have the Spirit of God? Amen. Yeah, well, these are very powerful things. But when we get in our mind that we have nothing, then we're taking the Word, we're taking the Spirit, and we're basically devaluing them. And we're looking at them as inadequate in, in comparison to what we have. We run to other people because we feel like what they have is better to battle what we're up against than what we have. So in essence, we're taking other people who maybe have a lot of money, a lot of influence, a lot of wealth, and we're saying what you have is more valuable than the word that I have, than the spirit that I have. Isn't that what we're saying? And that's not a good thing. That's something that the enemy tricks us into doing and deceives us into Actually, and that's a, that's a mentality that comes because when you find folks that are in this situation, they feel like nothing they have has any value against what they're, what they're up against. Now, he says, what do you have in the house? He doesn't just say, what do you have? He says, what do you have in the house? Because what, is gonna ha- what God is going to do is going to be done in the house. So it has to be in the house. What do you have in the house? Look around the house. You're not there right now, but she can, she can know what's around the house. I mean, she's the, the woman of the house. She knows what's in the house. So she's thinking through the house. She's going on through the house. She's overlooking a whole lot of things probably. But she says, well, I got this little tiny bit of oil. She's looking for anything that has value. The oil has a little bit of value, but she only got a little bit of it. That's, that's what we have. Got a little bit of oil. Now, thinking that we begin to think is, since I have nothing, I can do nothing. So that's, this is the first thing he's got to do. You have something. You have something. Get the focus on that. You've got something. Because if I think I have nothing, I think there's nothing I can do. What we're left is feeling is that I am at the mercy of what others are willing to do for me. And we, again, become passive in our faith. Now, I made this note. It's in mine, it's not in yours. Most people's request for help involves more of their own sense of entitlement to what other people have than in their faith in God and what he promised. Most people's request for help involves more of their own sense of entitlement to what other people have than in their faith in God and what he promised. They are more interested in what God has multiplied for you than in him multiplying for them. Because it's easier to take what God has already multiplied for you than it is for, to use my faith 
to believe that God is going to multiply something for me. And see, that's not, that's not good. We have to get people out of that mentality. We've got to get them to the place where they see, no, God will work for you. God will multiply in you. The folks that go out there and do motivational speaking, these are people that God has multiplied things on the inside. They have multiplied their ability to get things done. They have multiplied their ability to break things down. And what they try and do in these meetings is to get you to do the same thing. Not to do it for you, but to get you to do the same thing. And people pay money to go to these seminars for people that are well, well versed at this for the purpose of them being multiplied and be able to do this. But that's, that's, they have the mentality, I want to be multiplied in this, empower me to get out there and to do it. But if people have the idea that I can't do anything, you have to do it for me. What happens is me and my faith become uninvolved. And you can't help people in this, this place. Jesus doesn't try and help people that are in this place. He tries to get them to a place where they are involved and they are doing something. So verse 3, Then he said, Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. D- do not gather just a few. So he first deals with this, this mentality that I have nothing. That's the first thing we have to get out of. I have nothing or what I have has no value for what I'm facing. Here's the second thing. When he says, go borrow vessels, what happens to people who get involved in a desperate situation when they are facing something impossible is they begin to feel like they're doing this on their own. They feel like they're by themselves. I put in your outline, help us out there, but you are asking in desperation, not faith. There is help out there. But most people ask for help in desperation. They don't ask for help in faith. You can tell this. How many times have people come to you and they ask for help and something on the inside just turns off? You say, oh, I am not getting involved with that. Oh, I don't want to do that at all. And then other people come up and they ask for help and you can't wait to help them out. Because some people come and they ask you for help in faith and some people come and they ask you for help in desperation. Let's look at the, the difference in that. He says, go and ask for help. He doesn't just say, go and ask for, go to your neighbor. Hey, can you help me? This is probably what she's done. Can you help me? Is there anything you can do at all for me? I'm desperate. Can you help me? But he says, don't just do that. I want you to do this. I want you to go out and I want you to borrow vessels. How do you borrow a vessel? You go knock on a door and say, I need any empty vessel that you have or any vessel that you can empty for just a time. I will bring it back, but I just need an empty vessel. Do you have any empty vessels? And they may come to the door. They may bring one, two, three, or something like that. Do you have any? Is there anything else? I need every empty vessel I can get. Is there anything else that you have? No, that is all the ones that we have. I really appreciate your help. Thank you very much as we go on to the next one. But you see, there's a difference. She's not asking for help out of desperation. She's asking for help out of faith. I know they have empty vessels. I know they can give me the empty vessels. I know they won't mind giving me the empty vessels because I'm going to bring the empty vessels back. He didn't say take them. He said borrow them. When you borrow them, you go and you get it and you bring it on back. Go and ask for specific help. Not just help me, but can I borrow your empty vessels? Can I borrow your empty vessels? And everybody has vessels. They all have, uh, we, all, we all have containers in our house. Some of them are filled with things. Some of them are empty. But if somebody came to you and said, can I use your empty vessels? And if you brought all the empty vessels that you had and they said, is there anything else? And, and you were getting excited about helping this person. 
Is there some vessels that you have in your house that you would dump out? Because you could fill them right back up real easy. But there's some vessels that, no, I can't dump that out because, oh man, that would be, <laughs> that would not be fun to be putting that back together again. But there are some that you could dump out, be pretty easy to do, and then just come on back and, you know, when you, when you bring that back, I'll put them back in and then uh, we'll be good to go. So this is it's specific stuff. Can I borrow your empty vessels? And this is not a request of help to take what you have and make it mine. It is to take what you have so that you can also be a part in helping me with this. And when God does this miracle, every person who gave a vessel, their vessel was used for that. Can you imagine these people? They got the vessel there. This is one of the vessels that was in the house when that miracle took place. Wouldn't you, be, wouldn't you put that vessel maybe in a little higher esteem than it was at before? Wouldn't you hear what this vessel had been through? Can I borrow your empty vessels? This is fighting the thinking that you are all alone. Because up till now, she just probably felt all alone. Probably her relatives either can't or won't help. Some of her neighbors can't or won't help. Or some of them have helped, but they've, they've done all that they can. And it's inadequate for what she needs. And she begins to feel all alone. Now, see, that's the tactic of the enemy. The enemy loves you to be isolated. You are easier to defeat if you are isolated. If you are pulled out from the pack. This is why he likes to get a lot of people out of church. He gets them offended by things that people do in church. And then they stay at home and they watch church on TV. Because I'm still getting church. But I don't have to associate with those people. And they get to be isolated. You know, some of the people that, that call. They, we get people all the time. And they call. Can you help me with my rent? Yeah, we don't know them. Never met them. Never even been inside the church. They don't even probably know where the church is. They just open up the phone book and start calling down all the different churches. Hey, can you help me? How can you help me? How can you help me? How can you help me? And uh, when, when I was taking more of their calls <laughs> and trying to do some, some good for them, and we'd ask them the question, you know, well, where are you going to church at now? Oh, we don't go to church. Boy, the people that get offended at me when I ask them, well, how is it that you're calling a church for help if you don't go to church at all? They didn't like that question. They didn't like that question. I got mad at me. Some people hung up, hung up on me at that, that point. That's fine. That's, that's all right. You can hang up on me. But they didn't, they didn't like that idea. But some people who would hang around, I would tell them, it says, you know, there's folks in our church, and sometimes they need help. And the people in the church know who they are, and these folks have tried to help. And they, they've put their time in. They've done things. they become part of the church. And when they become in need, folks stand up and they, they help out because they've sown into them. I said, you need to be in a group. You need to be in a church. And you need to be, be, uh, be sown into that. Not everybody wants to hear it. See, the, the enemy likes to get us isolated. I put this in there. First, we think Christians don't care because we've gone to the Christians and, and they won't help. And then we think no one cares because then we've gone out into the world and the world doesn't want to help. And finally, we think God doesn't care. And we feel all alone. Because Christians don't care about me, the world doesn't care about me, and God doesn't care about me. And the thought will come into these people, yeah, if you just died today, no one would miss you. No one would care. He gets that feeling of isolation. Well, it's exactly when we watch the National Geographic shows and we see the lion going after the gazelle. What are they trying to do? We're, we're trying to get somebody isolated from the group. Either they're too slow and they fall behind, 
or they get them to separate. They just try and get in between one. Because if they get them isolated from the group, they can get them. When they're all in a pack and they're all running, they can stampede a lion. And he knows that we don't want to get underneath those hoofs. So all we need to do is get them out because one can't stampede us. A couple hundred can, but one can't stampede us. So we get one and all we need is one. We don't need to eat the whole group. We just need to eat one. <laughs> so they're just looking for... So they try and get that isolation. And that's what they, they do. And the devil hunts like who? A roaring lion. Trying to isolate you. Trying to get you by yourself. So this lady feels isolated. She feels desperate. Her husband was one of the prophets. And so she figures Elisha, kind of head of the prophets now. Surely he, he knows the husband. Surely he knows his situation maybe even. Maybe he even knows why the husband has this great debt. Maybe the debt was incurred trying to take care of the sons, the, the prophets that he protected. Who knows? But whatever it was, he doesn't really go over the reasons for the debt or how the debt came about. He just gets right into the answer. So, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take what we have, the oil, that's what we have in the house, and we're supposed to go out of the house, go knock on everybody's doors, get everybody else involved that we can. And he says, get... All the vessels again. Don't get a few. Don't, he doesn't tell her how many. But he says, don't get a few. I get an idea from this person that she combed the entire place and got every single vessel that she could and has them all in the house. But they have to be in the house. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you. You and your sons then pour it into all these vessels and set aside the full ones. Now, I had a song here I was going to pull out and, and have Daryl do, but we couldn't seem to get it off of the UPS. But how many remember the song, Shut the Door, Keep Out the Devil? Don't remember? I say, it would have been great to have played this one <laughs> because it's a, it's, a, it's a fun little song. So we'll have to find it. I'll put it up on Facebook or something like that there for you if you, um, if you, want, to, you want to see this one. It's an old song. It comes in, but it's, uh, uh, it, it, it's pretty, pretty fun. Shut the door. And that's how they say it. Shut the door. <laughs> keep out the devil well here's the he says this to very specifically and when you have come in you shall shut the door and when we hear what she does it specifically says she shut the door why so much emphasis on shutting the door because this is the third thing you got to do when you shut the door on a place or what well, i put it in your outline this way why do we shut the doors to cut off influence Right? If they're making too much noise in the next room, we shut the door to cut down on the noise that's coming through. Right? If we don't like something that's going on in the room over here, we shut the door so we don't have to see it. So we don't have to hear it. So we don't have to be involved with it. If it's wintertime and the temperature outside is 15 degrees... What do you do to the door when you come in? Why? Because we're keeping the influence of the outside from coming into the inside. So we shut the door. Because if I shut the door, the 15 degrees will stay outside. And inside, we can have it to be at whatever you set your thermostat to be, 65, 68, 70, 85, whatever it is that you, <laughs> that you set it to. We, we do that because we want to... Shut the door. If you get into your car and it's cold outside, what do the people say? Close the door, close the door, close the door. It's cold. Right? We don't like that cold. We want to 
shut the door. So he says, when you have come in, you shall shut the door. Now, why does he specifically say to her, shut the door? Well, he's told her to go out into the neighborhood and canvas and get vessels. Yeah. All right. Do you think anybody along there probably say, what do you need the vessels for? Why do you need so many vessels? And he's, he hasn't told her not to tell the story. He hasn't said that at all. So, well, the prophet told me that I need to get all the vessels into my house. And then I need to pour the oil that I've got. And that it won't stop. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep, I need all the vessels I got. God's going to do a miracle in my house. And the debt that I have is going to be taken care of. Wow, that's pretty cool. Hmm. Uh, I like that. I like, she, she is, at this, folks, she is expecting a miracle. Because look at what he says. And when you come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it into all those vessels. How much does she have? She has a little oil. All right. Now, if you're thinking, I have a little oil. I don't need a whole lot of vessels. <laughs> and we aren't filling any of them up. Because <laughs> I only have a little oil. So she knows what's going to happen here. This is going to multiply. I've got a, she goes, I got a little oil in the house. And the prophet told me, Get all the vessels you can because my little oil is going to fill them all up. I'm going to sell it and we're going to make some money and we're going to pay off the debt. Wow, that's, that's pretty neat. Can I come and watch? No. No, there's no room for you in my house. In my house, there's only room for vessels. I have no room for people, only vessels. You need to, you need to stay outside the house. Well... If you go all the way around and you tell all these people what you're using vessels for, you're going to get a crowd. They don't have a movie theater, right? They don't have a whole lot of entertainment. They don't have TV, they don't have radio, anything like that. So this would be the entertainment of the day. Let's go on out by the house and see what's going on. I bet she's got a crowd outside the house wondering what's happening. Well, we don't want that influence over here. We need to... Shut the door. We don't want them coming in. We don't want their influence coming in. We need to shut the door. Now think of the times in the Bible when they were told to shut the door. Remember Noah? Noah, when you go in the ark, you and your family, what are they supposed to do? Shut the door. door. Why? (laughs) Because we don't want what's outside coming into the inside. Not just the water, but the people. We don't want what's outside coming into what's inside. And then some of the people, well, at least it's imagined anyway, some people are crying, asking. And, and what's, what's, uh, what's he say? What's Noah say? He says, sorry, God closed the door, man. We, we can't open the door. It's not ours to open. We can't do it. God closed the door. Yeah, Lot, when the, when the men of the city came to the house, what did he do? He first went out to them and he shut the door behind him to keep their influence from coming inside. And when it looked like it wasn't working, the, the uh, angels that were inside grabbed Lot, pulled him inside, and shut the door. They, they shut that door. I'll give you some other ones too. And they're, uh, later on in this chapter, we're going to see the Shunammite son. That she goes, when he dies, she puts him up in the room and she shuts the door. When Elisha goes up into the room, he shuts the door. When Jesus goes into the house with Jarius 
It doesn't say he shut the door. It says he put them all out. <laughs> now, I think that kind of infers that he probably shut the door. He probably put them out and closed the door behind them because we want to get that influence out. We're making a separation. And so what we have to do here, when he's, he's very specific, shut the door. We don't want what is outside coming inside. We want to cut off all that influence. So as we said, can you imagine the interest that would grow as they keep bringing empty vessels into the house? There's going to be all kinds of interest. And some of those people are going to want to overwhelm their desire to keep them out. And they're going to want to come in. No, no, shut the door. Shut the door. Keep that out. When people get into this mentality, we sometimes need to shut the door. We shut the door to the enemy. We shut the door to other people. We shut the door to other people telling us how impossible it is, how it's not going to happen. We need to shut the door to these things. And so that's the, that's the third thing is this influence that is there. We need to shut the door to it. It's not going to help us out. So he goes on in verse 4 again. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she and her sons are the only ones that are allowed in the room. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. So she had gone out into all the place, got all the vessels. They brought them all on in. Once they got to the last vessels, that's it. We have no more vessels in the city. Everything is here. <laughs> shut the door. And then we start. We don't start until the door is shut. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. So she's sitting there just pouring vessels. It's their job to bring the vessels. It's not her job to bring the vessels. She sits there and she pours the oil into the vessel. They got little ones. They got medium sized ones. They got big ones. She's just pouring it in there. When it's done, they pick it up and they carry it into another spot. And then they bring in another vessel. And she pours into that one. She's always got another vessel to be pouring into. She's, she's got the one she's pouring into. She's got another one right there backing it up. So as soon as she switches over and she doesn't stop. I don't I get the idea. She stops pouring. She doesn't pull back. She just keeps on pouring. She just keeps letting that oil keep on pouring out of there. She's probably looking at, man, how is this? Look at all that oil going out. Just keep pouring and pouring and pouring and the oil just keeps coming, coming and coming. And the, the sons are just sitting there. They're watching. They're letting it get all the way full. We want full vessels. We got all the vessels we can. We're going to fill every one of them up. So we fill that up and we take it on over. Can you imagine their excitement growing? As the first vessel gets full. Wow. I was wondering how that was going to... Look at that. Here's the second one. And then the third one. And then the fourth one. She's getting excited too. We're just pouring, 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 pouring. Hey, come on, give me another vessel. I, don't have, I need another vessel. There aren't any more. Then the oil stops. As soon as they say there's no more vessels, the oil stops. Then she came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons live on the rest. So she got enough oil out of this to pay off all the debt. And enough money for her and her sons to live off of. Amen. That's pretty good. I think it's pretty neat that after it got all done, she didn't just go out and do something. She came over to the, to the prop because he didn't give her none of his instructions yet. He didn't say go out and sell it. He just says do this and fill up all the vessels until they all got full. And then she came on over there to find out what was happening. I wonder what happened when she opened the door. <laughs> and she opens the door and everybody's, uh, what happened? What happened? All the vessels are full. <laughs> 
can we come in and see? I don't know what she said at that point because all she had to do was close that door while they were doing. He didn't say anything about it, closing the door after it was all done. It's all done. They, maybe some people came in and they looked and they said, they may have even said, can you show me the vessel you poured it from? She may have even showed them. It was this one. And they look in there and it's empty. There's nothing in there now. Remember, it stopped pouring. It stopped the last of it came in. Here's the thing that we're battling here. There is something you can do. When we face an impossible situation, it is easy for us to think there is nothing we can do. He says, stop thinking you are helpless. You are not helpless. You can do something. And the Spirit of God is on the inside of you who will empower you to get some of these things done. See, this person would say, but I can't pay the debt. Well, can you pour oil? I can pour oil. I can't pay the debt, but I can pour oil. Good. Good, that's... Uh, pour the oil. Pour the oil. You, you can do that. I was over... Um, Tuesday, Tuesday, we had a surprise visitor who came on o- over... Um, John and I were supposed to go out and we were supposed to run on Tuesday night. We run every Tuesday night at the group run. It's fantastic night. We look forward to it because we just push each other. We just when We both missed each other last time, but we were out there this time. He came to the door early. I wasn't expecting him. He came into the door and he says, hey, can you help me out? His wife was rushed to the emergency room for, um, and it ended up that they were giving her some iron and her body didn't respond to whatever was going on. Anyway, she ended up in the, the emergency room and he, um, he was kind of, kind of shook up from this. I said, John, what do you need me to do? <laughs> so he says, he has his two little girls with him and the son was at home. He says, can you watch my kids for me while I, uh, I go to the emergency room with my wife? No problem. So I went over to his house and we were sitting around the table. We were doing homework. We are doing everybody's homework and we are having a good time with that while we are getting all the homework done. And they had a board up on the wall and the board said, I can do. So I asked one of the kids, I says, what is that about? What is the I can do board? She says, oh, that's mom's board. She was always thinking about the things she can't do, so she put this up there and says, I can do, and she writes in there what she can do that day. <laughs> I thought, well, how neat is that? That's just a, that's really cool. We've got to be thinking about what we can do because too often we think about what we can't do. What we can't do. And that's what the enemy wants us to think about. As long as I keep thinking about what I can't do, or that what I can do is inadequate against what I face, I will feel helpless and I end up doing nothing. So here's what the enemy wants to get us to think. This is what he wants us to, uh, to do. He wants to get us uninvolved. He wants us to basically just get passive. Nothing I can do. Debtors are coming. I have no money. He wants to get us uninvolved. Secondly, he wants to get us isolated. We're over by ourselves. Third, he wants to get us negatively influenced. And fourth, all to make you feel or become helpless. And if you have that mentality, you will never overcome what is impossible. In fact, you won't even overcome what is possible because you are so overcome with all this feeling that even what you can do seems like too much. And more and more becomes piled upon you. We become uninvolved. We become isolated. We become negatively influenced and helpless. And that's where the enemy likes us to be. So Elisha, in asking, telling her to do these things, set out 
to battle all this. What do you have in the house? And how often does Jesus do this same thing? What do you have? Now, the first thing Jesus would always make people do when he came to him is, what do you want me to do? He would make them state it. He would make them do that. And Jesus didn't do all four of these things all the time, but sometimes he did two. Sometimes he did three. The, the man who was at the pool, right? Take up your bed and walk. And what he did was he got him to be involved in this thing. He got him to see that what he had, because I'm sure laying there, he thinks, I got nothing. All I got is the bed that I have here. And Jesus said, that bed has value. Pick it up and take it home. That bed's got value. Take it up. And, and I'll bet you from that day on, that bed had value. That he's saying, that's the bed Jesus told me to pick up. And I took it up and I came home. <laughs> he's probably excited about that bed. That bed probably had a special place. He didn't use it anymore, but that bed probably had a special place in the house. That was the bed I used to lay on. That was the bed that Jesus told me to take up and walk. And I took it up and I walked. Amen. We didn't shut the door in that case. There was no door to be shut. He was out there in the midst of everybody, but everybody was leaving him alone. There was nobody trying to influence him. There was, everybody was, was focused on themselves and getting themselves in the pool. Everybody was focused on the pool when the pool would stir and then focused on themselves. I had to get myself in the pool. No one cared about him. Didn't have to shut the door. So there was no shutting the door with that one. But he felt helpless because what he said, when the angel comes and stirs the water, I have no one who will put me in. And he felt helpless. And we can go through all of Jesus' miracles and you can begin to look and you'll see some of these four aspects involved. Amen. Not always all four. Sometimes two. Sometimes three. But this is what we have to do when we face something impossible. When Jesus was doing the miracles in the, in the Bible, when he was healing blind people and deaf people and lame people, he was taking a situation that for them was impossible. And they had nothing adequate to do to stop it. And so Jesus would get them involved. He would get them to not feel isolated. He let them know that, hey, I care about you. I'm here. What is it that you want me to do for you? You're not isolated. You're not out here by yourself. I'm right here with you. If there were negative influences, he would work on that. When Jairus was having, the, <coughs> when he first got the news, what did Jesus say to him? Do not be afraid. Shut the door on fear. Shut the door on fear. And when he got to the house, we know he put everybody out and probably shut the door there too. But we, we feel uninvolved. We feel isolated. We feel negatively influenced and helpless. These are the things that God will take care of. These are the things in, in one uh, very short paragraph, Elisha takes care of. <coughs> And he deals with each one. Now, this woman, to her credit, she paid attention to everything that he said, and she did it. Didn't realize what it was doing for her, but it got her, got her motivated. She went from a place of being uninvolved and helpless, feeling like there was nothing she could do, to now she had a goal. And every single one of those goals was attainable. I can get vessels. I can pour oil. I can shut the door. I can do all these things. This is possible. And this is what we need to do. When God gets us to do the impossible, he always does it by getting us to do the possible. When Moses split the Red Sea, what did he do? He raised his staff. Can Moses raise his staff? Absolutely. He can do that. He can't part water. 
but he can raise a staff. Can Elijah send fire from heaven? No, but he can call for it. God gets us to do the impossible by getting us to do what is possible. And he takes care of the part that makes up the difference. What a God we serve. Father, we thank you that you care about every single situation that we face. And though we look at some things and they sure seem to be impossible to us, everything to you, Father, is possible. We just need to look at it through your eyes. The enemy continually works on us to get us to feel useless, helpless, isolated, worth nothing, that we have nothing. But Father, you have a way to combat that. I thank you, Father, for the way that you give us instructions. And if we just follow what it is that you say to do, we will combat that thinking that has set us into the place of impossibility. You'll tell us to do what is possible. You'll close the door to influences or tell us to close the door. And Father, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's what your word says. But we need to focus our energies. We need to begin to do what you say to do because nothing that we face is impossible. I give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.